If you've got your Bibles, we are in chapter 8, and we're going to do like a minor miracle for me. Hopefully do two chapters today. Chapters 8 and 9. So I'll just pray, and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to jump into your word. Lord, please speak to us. Please give us understanding because you promised that your Holy Spirit would teach us all things and you teach us through your word. So we just pray that you would do that for us this morning and I pray that you'll be blessed, you'll be glorified as we think and learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the book of Revelation. It starts off with Jesus revealing himself to John in chapter 1 as the glorified Saviour. Then, in chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven letters to the seven churches, and that represents the church age. And so, the different eras or characteristics of the church over the last 2,000 years were described when John wrote chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And then in chapter 4, it says, After these things, and come up here, and that represents the rapture. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we have the church in heaven after the rapture. So the rapture happens, we meet Jesus in the air, like we're seeing in that song, uh, Almighty. And we meet him in the air, and we go to be with the Lord in heaven. And we're there for the seven-year tribulation period. But before the tribulation starts, there's some things that happen in heaven. And one of those things is in chapter 5, where there's this special scroll. And the scroll is the title deed to the earth. God gave it to Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve handed it over or forfeited it to Satan when they rebelled against God. And they joined Satan's team, so to speak. And so we see Jesus taking the scroll from the Father, and a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, he's starting to open the scroll. So Jesus won the scroll back. He bought it back by his blood when he died on the cross. But at this point in time, he hasn't come back to redeem the purchased possession, the earth and the people on it. So we're just waiting for him to come back and the tribulation period is this process where Jesus both judges and then returns to take what is rightfully his, what he paid for with his own blood. So that's a really quick summary of where we're up to. Last week we covered chapter 7, which is talking about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And that's a glorious chapter. They are sealed before any destruction happens on the earth. And they are used to be evangelists, basically, to the whole world. And in the second part of that chapter, this multitude of people who come to know Christ. And they're martyred, they're killed for their faith, but it's better than going to hell. And they come to know Christ, they're persecuted, and in Revelation, we'll read later on, that it says, blessed are those who die in the Lord because it's just it's not worth or it's very difficult to live during this tribulation period, even if you're not a Christian. And we're going to get into some pretty heavy judgments today, actually. We're going to cover the trumpet judgments. So chapter 6 was the first seven seal judgments and then the seventh seal judgment. When that opened up, when Jesus opened that seventh seal what was revealed was another seven judgments, and these are called the trumpet judgments. So the first six seal judgments happened, and then now the seventh seal judgment has been opened, and we get this like a expansion, like a telescopic expansion where we have another seven judgments. So we're carrying the story forward chronologically, like chapter 6 did with the trumpet judgments and last week was an explanation of who the 144,000 were 
and their ministry on the earth. So for today, let's start by reading Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And the reason I'm doing two chapters today is because it covers one topic, which is the first six of the trumpet judgments. All right, so if you've got your Bibles to Revelation 8, we'll just start reading. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So the first trumpet... The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, or bitter, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Chapter 9 now. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. 
Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulphur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke and brimstone. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So, go back to verse 1. And it says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So, chapter 6 talked about what happened when they opened the first six seals. Now this is a seventh seal, and when it's opened, there is a pause, there is a quiet in heaven. Now every time you read Revelation, or especially chapters 4 and 5, and later on, what are they doing? They're worshipping, they're singing. There's always activity, there's always praise and, and things. But here... After talking and describing the 144,000 witnesses and the great multitude they lead to Christ during the Great Tribulation, there's a pause, there's a silence in heaven for about half an hour. So, you know, we have a pause in some of our ceremonies in our Western culture. Can you think of one? Yeah, Remembrance Day. So, there's several possible reasons for this silence in heaven. And Remembrance Day gives us the idea that you know, it's about something that's important. We have to remember something or we have to listen to something. So I'll give you two or three reasons. The angels are silent and, and the elders and everyone is silent so the prayers of the saints can be heard. And perhaps even the cry of the martyrs as we read about in chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. So God always hears our prayers. Or another reason, or maybe both, this silence in heaven demonstrates a sober, awestruck silence at the judgments yet to come. It's like, whoa, this is really serious. This is really going to be painful. And it's like, you stand back and say, wow. Because now the seals are all open and the scroll can be opened. So, as I said, I think it's probably a mixture of those things. All right, verse 2. In chapter 8, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given trumpets. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. So, here we are introduced to another seven angels. And they are described as the seven angels who stand before God. So when we get to heaven, there's going to be lots of different things to see and experience. And they stand in God's presence. So like the four angels we read about before the seraphim or cherubim, they are also very powerful angels. And they're going to each be given a trumpet, which will in turn one after the other, be used to announce or start the seven trumpet judgments. And by the end of these, or the first six of these 
trumpet judgments, another third of the earth's population will be killed. So if you do your percentages, it's 25% in the first six judgments, the seal judgments, and it's 25, another 25 of the whole original population. So it's 2 billion, another 2 billion. <laughs> and at the end of this, you've got half the earth's population left. So we'll see what happens as we go through. That's why there's this silence. And then we're given seven trumpets. Now, in the Old Testament, trumpets were given to Israel and they were used for various purposes. They could call people in to have an assembly or they were the cry for a battle. It was a battle cry, okay? Or the battle alarm. And then in verse 3 it says, then another angel. Now, there's debate about who this angel is, and so you'll have to figure this out for yourself. But I'll give you the two options that most commentators have. Some see this other angel who's offering the incense as Jesus because they see him as acting as a, or functioning as a mediator and because of the Old Testament references to Jesus as the angel of the Lord. Others, however, disagree and say it could only be a mere angelic being, like a, a normal angel, but very powerful, but still an angel, not an eternal being, because of the specific Greek word for another. So it says another of the same kind. Now, you can't have two Jesuses, if you know what I mean. So that's basically what's happening here. There's only one Jesus, so how can you have another? So there's the two arguments there. Some people believe it's Jesus because he's offering incense, he's performing the duty of the high priest. Other people say, no, it can't be. So you can work that one out. But there's nothing saying an angel can't work as a priest either because remember there was other priests in the temple. All right, verse 3, and it said, he came and stood at the altar. So this altar is the golden altar of incense, I believe. And in the Old Testament, when they had the temple and the tabernacle, the priests would go in and daily offer incense on this altar. It was before the veil, which stopped you from looking at the Ark of the Covenant. And it represented the prayers of the people and the prayers of the priest interceding for the people. And what we see in heaven is actually the original temple design. Because everything on earth is a copy, like the tabernacle and the temple, is a copy of what is in heaven. And Exodus 25.9, as a paraphrase, says, Make the tabernacle and the furniture according to the pattern that I show you. So God had shown Moses how to build this thing, what it all looked like, and then Moses built a copy of it. It's like a shadow. It's a earthly shadow of the heavenly reality so in heaven there's actually a physical temple so here are some of the similarities just as heaven has a door so did the tabernacle as heaven had a sea the tabernacle had a brass laver or molten sea as heaven had a lampstand so did the tabernacle as heaven had an altar of incense so did the tabernacle as there was an altar for sacrifice so there is in heaven and the tabernacle or the temple. And as in heaven there is a throne of grace, so in the tabernacle and later the temple on earth, there was a seat of mercy, the mercy seat. Just so you understand what's happening up there, there's a physical temple that they're using. And then in verse 3 it also says a golden censer, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God. So incense is a picture or type of prayer now this incense smelt sweet it was made partly of sugar and sweet smelling spices and the idea is that just as incense is precious pleasant and it drifts up so do our prayers to god our prayers are precious and they're pleasant he wants to hear our prayers and so before the first trumpet sounds and the first of these next seven judgments begin, the prayers of God's people come before the Lord God. Now, 
What does this show about prayer? And I've got two quotes here. And David Guzek says, Significantly, the prayers of God people set in motion the coming consummation of history. Do you realize that? It's our prayers are setting in motion what's going to happen next. Everything stops and the prayers of the saints come up and then Jesus is like acting in answer to our prayers. Another a guy called Torrance says, more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world. More powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. So I'm going to stop here for a little bit and we're going to talk about prayer. Don't ever doubt the effectiveness of your effective prayers. Does that make sense? Don't ever doubt the effectiveness of your effective prayers. And in saying that, what I'm showing you is that not all prayers are effective. So what I want to do now is just spend like 10 minutes talking about what makes prayer effective. What is an effective prayer? What makes a prayer life effective? So here we go. There's four main things that I'm going to quickly look through today. One, our prayers need to be specific. And a good reference to that is 1 John 5, 14 to 15. Secondly, our prayers need to be persistent. And that's Luke 18, 1 to 8. Thirdly, our prayers need to be according to God's will. And fourthly, our prayers that are offered in faith, we need to be not wavering. So that's James 1, 6 to 8. So I'm going to go through these scriptures and let's see what we can learn about prayer because I know I can always improve in my prayer life. So hopefully we get some hints here about how we can be better intercessors and better prayers. We can communicate better with God. So the first one is our prayer must be specific. First John 5, 14 to 15, it says, Now this is a confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask. And if we know that he hears us, now that if means since, okay? It's a guarantee. It's not maybe if, it's yes, he will. He does. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So this word ask, I just want to talk about this word ask here. It describes a person who speaks out and prays boldly and authoritatively. Okay, so that's how we come before the throne, confidently, boldly, what it says in Hebrews, yeah, as well. So this person knows specifically what he needs and isn't afraid to humbly, yet boldly, come into God's presence and ask to expect to receive what he has requested, and even things concerning themselves. And then there's the word petitions. Now, why would it use the word petitions? Why not just use the word request? Well, a petition is something that's very specific. And I looked this up and someone said, the word petition in the Greek denotes a specific, exact, explicit, precise, and detailed request. This request is so in-depth, thorough, and comprehensive that there is no room for misunderstanding exactly what has been asked. And that's why it's translated petition. You know, when you go to court, you put a petition in. Okay, that petition must be detailed so the judge knows exactly what you're asking, what you're requesting him to do. And then it says, according to his will. Now I've got a quote from David Guzik. It says, the most powerful prayers in the Bible are always prayers which understand the will of God and ask him to perform it. <laughs> now, I like this next bit. We may be annoyed when one of our children says, Daddy, this is what you promised. Now please do it. I don't know if you've experienced that. But God loves it when we do that. God loves it when we say, Hey, Dad, Abba Father, this is what you said. Would you please do it? It shows that our will is aligned with His. It shows that we're depending on Him and we take His words seriously. And as you go through, like Daniel, for example, I'm not going to go through it now, I don't have time, but He knew that the 70 years was almost up in Daniel chapter 9. And he prayed, God, you said that 
captivity was 70 years, would you please bring your people back to their homeland? He was praying according to the will of God and he could expect that to be answered because that's what God had already said was going to happen. Again, we don't do this disrespectfully, but we can come confidently and boldly before the throne. So, a question that some people ask, if something is God's will, why doesn't he just do it apart from our prayers? Why would he wait to accomplish his will until we pray? Why did Daniel have to pray for the children of Israel to go back to the homeland, for example? The answer is simple. It's 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. God has appointed us to work with him. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 says, as workers together with him. So God wants us to work with him. So we come alongside the work that God is already doing and we join him in his work. Now prayer, what it does, it brings our will and agenda into alignment with him. As we pray, we demonstrate that we care about the things that he cares about and that we're passionate about the things that he's passionate about. So prayer isn't just about getting our prayers answered. It's also about changing us as we learn to depend on him. And then the last thing in this verse is the promise that he hears us. Doesn't always answer our prayer the way we want, but we can be guaranteed that God will hear us. Okay, We have the attention of our Heavenly Father. So in summary, what can we learn from 1 John 5, 14 to 15? We can ask confidently. Even about things that concern us. Yes, even the little things in our lives. God cares for the little things in our lives. We can ask him. Don't be scared. We need to ask according to his will. And we'll look into that more in one of the next verses. And God promises that he will hear us, that he is paying attention to us. Although he may not answer our prayers the way we think he will because he knows best. He's wiser. And we are encouraged to bring our detailed petitions to him. So I just want to encourage you today to open your Bible and explore what it says until you find specifically what the will of God is for your situation. And then you can pray a lot more confidently. Does that make sense? Find out what the Bible says about something, how I should be reacting, what I should be doing as best you can, and then when you pray, ask God to help you to do that particular thing. And God will say, thank you very much, let's do it. Now, the next attribute of our prayer, it needs to be persistent. So I'm going to read Luke 18, to 8 It says, Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart or give up. So I'll just repeat that. Then he spoke, this is Jesus speaking, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet Because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. I imagine that she was driving him crazy. So, then verse 6. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Okay, he's an unjust judge. And then verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, his own children who cry out day and night to him though he bears long with them okay there's a key here he will answer our prayers though he bears long with them okay i tell you he will avenge him speedily nevertheless when the son of man comes will he really find faith on the earth now i just want to point this out christians are being persecuted all over the world their persecutors seem to get away scot-free. All the time, or not all the time, but a lot of the time, 
Christians are persecuted and they seem to get away with it. And that's why verse 7 kicks in. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears along with them? When we start getting into chapter 8, we're going to see the answer to these prayers. God will avenge the death of his saints, the persecution, the suffering, the blood that's been shed, the Christians who have died, the prophets who have been killed. In the Old Testament as well, it's all going to come to an end. God will answer those prayers. He will avenge us. Okay. God will pour out his fury on a Christ-rejecting world in response to the prayers of the saints. Now, John 14, 13 and 14 helps us to understand what it means to pray according to God's will. It says, You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. So in my name describes Jesus' character and his motivation. Now, according to these verses, what is Jesus' motivation? So that the Son can bring glory to the Father. It's about being God-centered and not self-centered. And that's what Jesus was all about. He's always doing the things that pleased the Father. He loved the Father. He never wanted to let him down. He always wanted to please the Father. He wanted to honor the Father. He wasn't concerned about how it made him look or how it affected him. Only how it affected the Father. So if we pray with this kind of heart or this attitude, we are praying according to the name or character of Jesus. We are in his will. We are walking with him, abiding in him, experiencing his love. What God wants becomes what I want, and it's a beautiful place to be, just walking with Jesus in agreement and abiding in him. Then, the last attribute that I'm going to talk about this morning, prayers that are offered in faith. For a prayer to be effective, it must be offered in faith. So James 1, 6-8 says, But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So the main thing here, our loyalty is divided between God and the world, which means our motives are selfish. And we're not really depending on God. We're not doing things for the glory of God. We're doing things for ourselves. And it says, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So a good prayer is, Psalm 139, the last two verses. Try me, search me, examine me, and see if there be any wicked way in me. So that when we pray, we're praying according, or praying by faith. We're really doing this for God and not for ourselves. We're not double-minded. All right, chapter 8, verse 5 in Revelation. Then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So remember I was talking about the different altars in heaven? There's a golden altar of incense, which is the altar of prayer. And then there's the altar where they would put the sacrifices, burn the sacrifices. And that's where the fire was. So he took the fire from the brazen or bronze altar, I believe. So again, I just want to emphasize that we see the impact and power of answered prayer as the prayers of the saints are hurled back to the earth. So don't ever think your prayers are wasted. God will answer your prayers when? It's just at the right time. Never too early and never too late, but when they are most effective. And here we see God answering the prayers of the saints in the most effective and most powerful way possible. Now, we come to our first Trumpet judgment. That's Revelation 8, 6 and 7. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. 
and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Wow. I just want to say that we don't actually know what caused this. I've got some ideas. I'll share them with you. But John is just describing what he sees, and he's not telling us the exact cause of what caused these things, this hail and the fire mingled with blood and causing a third of the trees to be burned up and all the green grass. It actually means grain as well. So the food supply of the earth has burned up. It's destroyed. Now, here's one potential explanation for this. It's just a guess. All right. This particular judgment could be a nuclear holocaust. So when a nuclear warhead goes off, there's this pressure wave that goes out about 400 kilometers an hour and it's burning hot and it just incinerates and destroys everything in its path. So that's the fire. Now, when the shockwave goes up, all the atmosphere is pushed up, all the liquid, the moisture in the air is pushed up. It goes up, it condenses, it forms giant hailstones and you get massive hail coming down. So, for example, on Bikini Island, when the US did that test there, not only was it atmospheric water, but also the surrounding water from the ocean shot thousands of feet into the air. So you get hailstones from both these things. And they destroyed ships and destroyed the equipment that was used to monitor this nuclear blast. So basically, in a nuclear blast, you go with fire and ice. One explanation. It could be something else. It could be supernatural. We just don't know. That's just a guess. It's interesting. But whatever causes this, the result is that one third of the trees are burned up and all the grass and the crops are burned up by this fire and hail mingled with blood. What I want you to remember too is that if we jump, I'm not going to go there now, but Revelation 16, 9, 16, 11, and 19, 19, it talks about people understanding that these are not just natural disasters that happened, but these are God's judgments. Now, the second judgment, chapter 8, verse 8, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So notice the language here. It says something like a great mountain. All right. So it's not a literal or actual mountain. But it's a blazing mass, as large as a mountain, and like a mountain. So you can take your own guesses as to what that might be. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. That's a pretty massive destruction. You consider the ecological implications of a third of the fish stocks being killed, a third of the oceans being destroyed. A third of the ships that take everything around the world being destroyed. Now, some people say, ah, oh, these judgments are just allegorical. You can't take them literally. Okay, I challenge you. Go back to Pharaoh, back in the Exodus, and talk to Pharaoh and say, excuse me, Mr. Pharaoh, did Moses literally turn water into blood? Was that hail that destroyed all your livestock and your crops and your trees literal or is it just figurative <laughs> of course it was literal okay so just because we don't know exactly what causes these things the effects are very real and so probably the best explanation as a, from a material point of view or you know, and something that we can understand or a natural point of view is that it could be a meteorite Scientists have said that this has happened in the past and results in great ecological upheaval and disaster. So it could be that. We don't know. Now the third trumpet judgment is the plague on the fresh water supplies. So verse 10 in Revelation 8. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. So this great star fell from heaven could be, again, a meteorite or a comet, but it could be supernatural as well. And the name of the star in verse 11 is Wormwood, which means bitter. 
And many men died because of the water, because it was bitter or poisonous. So notice the proportion of this. It's a third of the oceans. It's a third of the water. It's a third of the trees. So this is called the judgment of thirds, these um, trumpet judgments. Later on, it's a third of the people are killed. Now we come to the fourth trumpet judgment. This is the plague on the heavens and darkness on the earth. So this is verse 12, Revelation 8. And it says, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So <laughs> imagine this. Imagine how cold it would be if the sun didn't shine for a third of the day and it only shone for two-thirds of its normal heat, two-thirds of its normal radiance. The world would go into, well, it, just, it would just start to freeze. I saw in the news Russia had ice rain. It was unseasonal. And all you saw was cars and buildings coated in ice. Everything was shut down. I imagine that's what this would be like. And it's not just one-third lessening of light, but it actually specifies there that a third of the day did not shine. So we can speculate this is a nuclear winter, but it might not be. It could be that God is just stopping the light. It's going to be pretty bad. I don't know how long this is going to last, but it can't last for too long because he can't grow food and a lot of people will die because of the cold. Now, Revelation 8 verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So the first four have been like child's play relative to what's about to happen. Enduring those first four trumpet judgments is actually pretty easy compared to what's about to come. These are called the three woes. So the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments are called the three woes because they're really nasty. They're a lot worse. So the first four, just to summarize what we've just done, the first four trumpet judgments are basically more natural things. They affect the area of, or arena of the natural. So you've got the oceans, the, the trees and the grass and the sun and the moon and the water supplies. Okay, But when we move on into chapter 9, it becomes very specifically supernatural. It's demonic. And this is the part where one-third of the remaining population is killed. Also, there's a progression here. These first four judgments reveal the severity of God's attack or God's judgment. But there's going to be a greater judgment to come. All right. For now, God spares more than he smites. Okay, I'll say that again. For now, this first four, God spares more than he smites. But that's going to change. And I've thought about it like this. These are called the three woes for good reason because they will be demonic. If the world wants demons and insists on worshipping demons, then demons they shall have. And I've said this before, sometimes the worst thing that God can do for us is to give us what we want. But sometimes it turns out to be a good thing when he does give us what we want because then we understand that it's not good for us. It's only going to hurt us. And so God's purpose in doing this is to bring repentance. So chapter 9, and we come to the fifth seal judgment, is the demonic locust from the bottomless pit. So 9 verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him, notice that, to him, was given the key to the bottomless pit. So it's not what, but who is this star fallen from heaven or fallen to the earth? 
So it's not a literal star, it has to be a person. Okay, It could be an angelic person, or it could be a human person, but most likely it's an angelic person. And the verb tense, fallen, indicates that it's already happened. So the most likely candidate for this star, this person, is Lucifer or Satan. One of the reasons for this is he is also called the shining one. And there was another one who saw Satan fall from heaven, and that was Jesus. And I want to give you an application here. So this is a paraphrase or kind of like a very liberal paraphrase of Luke 10 verse 20 and around those verses around there. Okay, Master, said the excited disciples returning from their first missionary venture. Even the demons are subject to us as we minister in your name. And Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. (laughs) In other words, you guys are so excited about the power you're experiencing in ministry, but be careful. I saw Satan fall from heaven because he got wrapped up in the power he possessed as heaven's worship leader. No longer a servant, he wanted heaven to serve him. Therefore, do not rejoice in what you are doing or what you have seen happen in your service for me. Rejoice instead in the fact that your names are written in the book of life, that you're saved by the goodness and generosity of God. And again, that's around Luke chapter 10, verse 20. So, don't get caught up in demons and exorcisms and having power over the enemy and all that kind of stuff. Don't let that become your passion and your end goal in life. Rejoice instead in what God has done for you in rescuing you from the consequences of your sin. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now this is interesting. What is the bottomless pit? Well, firstly, we know that when Satan fell, he also took a third of the angels with him. That's Revelation chapter 12. And we also know that in the Old Testament, there were those angels who left their first estate and they had the audacity to have relations with women and they produced the Nephilim or the giants, as you read about in Genesis and the book of Numbers. And it says that God cast them into the abuso or the bottomless pit. And so there's a number of references for that. Jude 6. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Okay, so they're chained up. They're in this abuso, this bottomless pit. And you remember when the legion of demons in the man who was wandering around the tombs in the Decapolis, the ten cities there, they said, please don't send us into the abyss. And they said, send us into those swine instead, those pigs. And so... They went into the pigs, and the pigs were rushed down into the lake. So you've got to leave there. So the abyss is a place like a prison for demons, and it's a part of the bottomless pit. That reference I was talking about is Luke 8.31. It says, And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. And you can also see Second uh, Peter 2 verse 4 for this. And Romans 10 verse 7. Now, can you imagine what will happen if the worst of these demons who are presently chained are released? Okay, just think about that. And now think about something else. Imagine that every prisoner was set free in our country. All the murderers, the rapists, the kidnappers, the thieves, the liars, they're all set free. What would happen? Well, this is like that, but a whole lot worse. When these demons are freed, it's going to be, you can use this word or the phrase hell on earth, it's really going to be like that. Torment. Hell is a place of torment. These demons are going to cause torment. And you'll read that in 9 verse 2 to 4. It says, And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. 
So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these are not natural locusts, okay? Why does God use locusts? Well, locusts in the Bible are always used as a symbol of judgment. I'll send locusts and they eat your crops. Try to get their attention so they repent. So these things might look like locusts, but they're not real flesh and blood locusts. They are a visual representation of the hordes of demons loosed upon the earth. So you know how locusts come and they're just like covering everything. There's many, many of them and you can't see the sky because of them. It's going to be like similar. Now verse 4 it says, the seal of God on their foreheads. So those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, and it's debatable, but maybe, I think this is probably the case, that those who are saved will not be affected, but I can't prove that. So those who are saved at the time will not be affected by this, but as I said, I can't prove that. But the 144,000 definitely are protected. But if you're not a believer, you are definitely not protected. And this is going to happen to you. You are going to be tormented for five months. It's going to be a horrible, the most horrible five months of anyone that anyone could even think about living. You wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy. So Revelation 9, 5 and 6, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them. That's why I use that phrase, hell on earth. People use that when they go through hard times. But this is... Like it's going to be in hell, you're going to be tormented. For five months, the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Can you imagine how awful that would be? Now, why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this to happen? These demonic angels to cause people to suffer? Well, it's to bring them to repentance. You look at verses 20 and 21, and it says, and they refused to repent, or they did not repent. Okay? So why is God doing this? He's giving them an opportunity to repent. He's going to great lengths, amazing lengths, to get the people's attention. So yeah, five months of incapacitating pain. I don't know if you know, I don't know, I've never been bitten by a scorpion, but apparently they're extremely painful. And there's no tough men when you get bitten by a scorpion. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's one of those things that you do not want to experience. Now, these unbelieving people, they want to escape the suffering. So what do they want to do? They want to kill themselves. But the reality of this is they would only go to a much greater suffering hell eventually the lake of fire forever so god is giving the temporary suffering to help them not to have to go through the eternal suffering and god does similar things in our lives too he causes us to go through hard times to get our attention to save us from other more serious pain right verse 7 to 10, it describes these locusts or these demons. The shape of the locust was like, so notice the word like, okay? It's not, it was a horse, no, it was like horses prepared for battle. On the heads were crowns or something like gold, and the faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and the stings were in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And verse 11, it says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has a name Apollyon. So, who was this king? It could be Satan, or it could be another high-ranking angel. I go with Satan. Both names mean destroyer. So, no matter what 
culture or language you are, whether you're Hebrew, like an Israelite, or you're Greek, you're a non-Jewish person, Satan is an equal opportunity destroyer. He destroys everybody. That's his goal. Revelation 9 verse 12, One woe is past, behold, two more woes are coming after these things. So you start to understand why these are called woes, the three woe judgments. And you might be wondering, how could it get any worse? If planet's ecology is just about annihilated, all the unbelievers are extremely suicidal, depressed to the point where they're self-harming and wanting to kill themselves, but can't die. Now, would you like to be a counsellor <laughs> in those times? <laughs> There's no help. The only help is from the 144,000 who offer the everlasting gospel and the angels who are flying around offering, explaining, giving the everlasting gospel. Because Just because you're in pain doesn't stop you from being saved. So these people had the opportunity to repent. So, and here's an application for, I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. It's a quote from John Corson. God desperately desires to see people who have rejected salvation wake up. Therefore, he will do whatever it takes in their families, financial situations, health, or marriages to get them on their knees where they can finally call out to him. The question is, what kind of locusts will God have to allow in our lives to wake us up from our lethargy? To wake us from our apathy. Whatever it takes, he loves us enough to let it happen. So that's the heart of God when we go through trials. It's not because he doesn't like you, it's because he loves you. And that's not the only thing that he's doing, only reason. The other reason he does that is to strengthen our faith. Okay, So it's not just to wake us up and get us out of that mode of sin or that deception that we're in, but also to make us strong. All right, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels. So now we are going to see another third of the earth's population dead. Now the four angels who are released are most likely very powerful and evil angels who were so destructive that God had them bound until it was his will for them to do their thing, the evil, destructive thing. And they were bound at the great river Euphrates. So why at the river Euphrates? What's significant about the river Euphrates? Well, it's a landmark of Babylon. Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. And it has been and always will be, especially in the future, the headquarters of evil. It's always been an evil place. Babylon represents the evil world system. It started with Nimrod. The first rebellion against God after the flood was at Babel or Babylon. Uh, verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So again, they're going to kill a third of the remaining population. So that means, if you do the math properly, it's 50% from the original population at the start of the tribulation is now dead. So if there's 8 billion people, that's 4 billion dead now. It's beyond being able to process. Verse 16. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on their breastplates of fiery red, high-cant blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like, again this word like, the heads of lions, and out of the mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by these plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. So people ask, is this army... A mechanized army, you know, shooting missiles and bullets and, and all this kind of stuff, or is it a supernatural demonic army? Well, we don't know. But it is a literal 200 million strong demonic army invading Earth. And uh, whether it's demonic or whether it's human and being led by these four angels, 
you know, motivated and, and stirred up by these angels, then we don't know. But the result is that another 2 billion people dead. And now to finish off, chapter 9, verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, so the remaining half of the population on earth, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship what? Demons. They should not worship demons. That's the first thing Okay, it mentions. They should not worship demons. As I said before, they are into the occult. They are into the world of demons and, and Satan, Satanism and stuff. So whatever it might be, your tarot cards, all those things, just stay away from it because it's dangerous. It's something that's going to deceive you. It's going to cause you to suffer. And idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So God has shown them his power. God has shown them the true colors of the demonic forces. And people say, that's okay. I'm going to keep worshipping these demons. I've just been tortured by these demons. My friends have been killed by these demons. But I'm going to continue worshipping them. It's foolishness. But that's what we do with sin. And that's an application for us here. When we sin, it hurts and it kills us. And we know it. But what do we want to do? We want to keep doing it. And we don't repent. So, think about that. Then, verse 21. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So, again, God's making it clear that his purpose for these judgments is repentance. Now, this list of sins hits close to home for us in today's world. You don't have to look very far to understand or to see that our modern world is characterized by what? Murders, sorceries. And what sorceries? It's drug taking. Okay. Pharmacia is the word in the Greek there. Sexual immorality. There's all kinds of sexual immorality in the world today. And thefts. And why? Because our society has rejected God. Now, what happens? What does Romans 1 tell us about a world that rejects God? It becomes depraved and foolish and dark. And that's exactly where this world is heading because they're continuing to reject God. So, in summary, the first six trumpet judgments were the first one was the vegetation was struck a third of the trees and all the grass and the crops. The second one was the seas or the oceans were struck. A third of the oceans were destroyed or turned to blood. A third of the fish died. The third of the fresh water sources, the rivers and streams and lakes, were poisoned, made bitter. The fourth one, the heavens were struck. So a third of the sun, moon and stars that stopped shining. And then the fifth one, in chapter 9, it's the locust from the bottomless pit that caused torment for five months. And the sixth one is the four angels from the Euphrates River and the demonic army of 200 million that killed one-third of the remaining people. And I just want to go through what I think is the most important part of today, and that is the prayer. God has stopped everything and he's focused our attention on the prayer, the prayers of the saints. So just to go over those four things. Prayer should be what? Specific, persistent, according to God's will, and offered in faith. So let's praise God that we are counted worthy to escape all these things, that is the tribulation, in context, and stand before the Son of Man, and that's what Jesus said in Luke 21, 36. And remember that to be counted worthy means that we are in Christ, we are born Again, that we have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and we understand that Jesus' death on the cross was a payment for our sins. And if we do that before the rapture, we will go up in the rapture and we will escape all this horror in the tribulation. So Father, I thank you for the gift of eternal life. I thank you that you died on the cross and you paid the penalty for our sins and so that we could be set free from the 
power and the penalty of sin. But Lord, in this world, there's a lot of people who are not repentant. And Lord, you're going to do an amazing thing and you're going to bring trials on this earth, judgments. And it's going to wake a lot of people up because we know that there's going to be a multitude that cannot be counted who will turn to you and put their faith in you and stand before the throne of God. And so this is not done in vain. This is done for a purpose. And without the tribulation, those people probably wouldn't have been saved. So we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love and kindness. And we understand that sometimes we go through hard times to save us from a greater pain or suffering. And help us to learn the lessons that you want us to learn. And Lord, help us to persevere when the trial is just there to strengthen our faith because we know that at the end we will rejoice. So Father, teach us to be in your word, to understand what your will is for our lives and so we can pray specifically. We can be persistent in our prayers. We can pray with faith and we can pray according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.